chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, oftentimes referred to as like the, the moral law or commandments. But now, as we move into chapter 21, God is breaking down these Ten Commandments into these day-to-day life application of how we live out this law, what, what these Ten Commandments ultimately mean for us today, and, and how do we kind of live this out in our social context. And I find that very intriguing and interesting because God's not just a God that kind of, you know, with power and might, you know, reveals himself to Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai and gives these Ten Commandments and just kind of says, you know, good luck with that. I'm, I'm on to more important things. He's interested in the day-to-day life. He's interested in us continuing to live these lives in a practical way in relationship to the Lord. And so God begins to lay these things out. He wants to guide us and see us living out these things in obedience to the glory of God and for our good. So in chapters 21 and 22 and, and ongoing the next few chapters, we're, we're looking at a number of, you know, of these rules and, and regulations that are, are given. Rules aren't always fun, are they? But they're, they're helpful, right? I have, I have two simple rules for life. Two simple rules for life. First of all, don't tell people everything you know. And, and rules are, are meant to guide us, help us. And uh, yeah, some of you are, yeah, you're tracking with me. It's good, okay. They're, they're there to guide us and help us. They're, they're there to keep us safe, ultimately. So throughout these next few chapters, we're gonna see the law get magnified into what it means to live these things out in a practical way and in a social context, especially for Israel as a nation, specifically for them, but many things that we can glean from and learn from for our lives and just hearing and seeing the heart of God uh, and what he desires. So first of all, we look interestingly at these laws concerning slaves, laws regarding slaves. Verse one, it says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. So again, these judgments are, are more so ordinances, they're their laws, their rules is what is being implied here when we hear that word judgments, these rules and laws that are being given, which are given to the nation of Israel. They're given differently than the law. Remember, the Ten Commandments are given and, and, and it's the finger of God writing on stone tablets. There's to be this, this kind of uh, stability and permanence to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, whereas these are... Uh, these laws now are, are given and written down uh, by the pen of Moses. Exodus 24, verse three to four, just turn over there with me. Exodus 24, verse three to four. Chapter 24, verse three. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, or again, the, the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's Moses now writing down these judgments or ordinances that are being passed on. While the book of the covenant contains principles that we can still apply today, it's specific pronouncements and penalties though were for the nation of Israel. They're, they're no longer binding to the church or, or the state, but there's certainly things that we, we learn, the heart of God, the mind of God, and things that are very practical 
again, for us to be abiding by. It says in verse two, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she's borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. Verse five, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I'm not gonna go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Now remember, God said in Exodus 20, verse two, says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, right? Remember, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt and it was not going well for them. It was brutal, it was tough, it was hard, and God had delivered them out. But now he brings some instructions and regulations regarding this area to ensure that they don't remain in the place where God had delivered them. Delivering them out of the house of bondage and slavery. Now keep in mind, a lot of people like to kind of, you know, blame Christianity or the Bible for the, the woes and the, the problems of slavery, the history of slavery, much of what we've seen in history, especially in, you know, in American or North American history, was done by force. It was you know, mistreating slaves. But in these times, Bible times here, times of Moses, slavery was already a common thing, and God simply looks to bring some healthy regulations to this practice. Slavery in this time was commonly a voluntary thing. A Hebrew could become a slave because of, of poverty. Um, they could become a slave to pay off a debt. And it was almost like they're just kind of entering the workforce. They're like, man, I, I need an income or I need to pay off something. I'm gonna work for this person. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be employed under this individual. And so slavery took on much more of that kind of practical um, exercise there. But here's what God does. He sets a law in place that a slave could only serve for six years and then in the seventh year, he'd be permitted to go free. See, God loves to operate on that principle of six and one, doesn't he? Six days of creation, resting on the seventh. It's interesting that we've very likely gone through 6,000 years from creation and the beginning of man, 6,000 years of kind of human history, and now we're in that 7,000th year perhaps it's a time that we are soon going to enter into our heavenly rest. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I love the timing of that. But it's interesting. It's been noted that there were, you know, as we read in verse one, these are the judgments. It's been noted that there's 42 judgments given in this section as Moses is laying out these judgments from chapter 21 and, and through to chapter 23. So 42 judgments given in the section, seven laws then, for each of the six days, wrapping all up in that complete you know, work of God, seven judgments for each six days equaling 42. Now, the number 42, this is what Salhamer says. He says the number 42 apparently stems from the fact that the Hebrew letters in the first word of the section uh, saying, and these in verse one, or now these, they add up precisely to the number 42. This suggests that the laws in chapters 21 through 23 
are to be understood merely as a representative selection of the whole Mosaic law. It's not an attempt at a complete listing of all the laws. The purpose of the selection was to provide a basis for teaching the nature of divine justice. By studying specific cases of the application of God's will in concrete situations, the reader of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, could learn the basic principles undergirding the covenant relationship. Whereas the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments that we saw in chapter 20, provide a general statement of the basic principles of justice which God demanded of his people. The example cited here now further demonstrated how those principles or ideals were to be applied to real life situations. So that's what we're looking at as we go through this section is how those 10 words or commandments really get applied to real life situations. Now, what's interesting is that the servant was to serve his master, right? Whether it's paying off a debt or just having a, a, a good kind of, you know, uh, income and provision, right? Um, but they were able now, after those six years, to make a free will decision of whether or not they want to continue on to serve their master. They were allowed to go free, it tells us, but then in verse five, if the servant plainly says, what does he say? I love my master. I love my master, my wife, my children that they've had while under the authority of that master. I love where I'm at. I, I love being here. I love this situation. It's, it's a far greater situation than I might have out on my own. And if they decide, I like it here. I love my master. I want to continue to serve my master. And they can with that free will decision continue on and what would happen then? The master would take that slave, they'd bring him out to the, the doorpost. They go to the, the gate, it says, uh, usually where the business was happening in the city. They'd go out before the judges. They would declare this and they'd take his ear up against the doorpost with an awl and pierce that ear, all right? And forever now that slave would walk around with a mark saying, I'm a slave, not by force, but because I've chosen to remain with my master. I love my master, I've got it good with my master. That's very interesting because Jesus became a servant for us. In fact, Psalm 40, verse six to eight, seems very much like it's pointing to the work of Jesus, saying sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears, notice, my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your laws within my heart. Philippians goes on to talk about how Jesus became that bondservant. That's what a bondservant was. It was the person that chose to continue to serve their master, marked by that pierced ear. And in Philippians 2, 5, 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, this is the key right here, my friends, to living a sold out life for Jesus. It's recognizing that God loves us. <laughs> and God wants nothing but your best, but that best comes in living obedient to the Lord. And when we choose to go, you know what? There's nothing greater out there in this world than living for my God, living for my Savior, who's a God that loves me 
and I love my Savior, and I want nothing more than to serve him and to do his will because it's in there that I find great pleasure and joy. There's nothing else out there that will greater satisfy me. There's nothing else out there that's going to satisfy. We have found the greatest of loves and pursuits when we have come to Jesus in a surrendered life saying, my life is yours, Lord. My life is yours. We're yours forever. That's what a bond servant does. That's the, the, the option that's right here in the law that a, a servant has to say, you know what? You, you're free to go. But just like Bob Dylan Wisey says, you're gonna have to serve someone. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve someone. That's the key. Who are you serving? Who are you devoting your life to? There's no greater master than to live for God, to live for his glory, to live in pursuit of him and to live that surrendered life to him. That's what a bond servant is. That was modeled for us in Jesus and I pray that we are experiencing the blessings of that ourselves. Verse seven goes on to say, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who is betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So this scenario now pictures a daughter being sold not so much into slavery, but being given as a wife. And, and so the requirements are there where the girl must not be mistreated or forgotten. She must be cared for. Now, it talks about this betrothal. The betrothal was an engagement. It wasn't the final marriage. The final marriage would come, you know, a, a year later. But this betrothal was signifying these two are coming together and it could only be separated by certificate of divorce. So betrothal was a very binding legal kind of a thing. And so when a girl is given and a father sets up, you know, the price, the dowry for her protection, and the, the father sets that up and gives the daughter over, well, now that man is required to treat her fairly and not to just dismiss her or, or not to move on and not care for her. That woman must be cared for taken care of. You know, many people thought the Bible places a very low view on women, yet God's the one that raised them up to a status they did not previously enjoy. And God ensured that women would be protected and provided for. So in verse 12, we move on to look at laws regarding personal injury now, all right? It says in verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I'll appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take, from, take him from my altar that he may die. So here now, God begins to spell out differences between first degree murder and manslaughter, the, the very same kinds of principles we carry out in our legal system today. So as we look at these laws re revolving on personal injury, the underlying principle is that the punishment should fit the crime. We're gonna see that repeated. When we deal with retribution, when we deal with, you know, again, 
what is carried out must fit the crime, how we deal with those things. Now, in the case of premeditated murder, the Bible advocates for capital punishment. Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, he made men. So this is a serious thing. Something we should not take lightly and just kind of, you know, taking out life. Made in, man's Im- made in God's image. And we need to have a high view on life. And so, again, now this is speaking of an act that's done in premeditation, done in anger. It's not speaking about accidents or self-defense. Now, if there was something that happened in a, you know, way of manslaughter, it was accidental, there was death, then God says, in verse 13, I will appoint for you a place where you may flee. What's interesting is in number 35, God appoints six cities that are known as the cities of refuge, where if somebody kills another person, whether it be accidental, maybe in self-defense, well, surely the person that died is gonna have family members that are like, oh, that's it, man. We're, we're out for revenge, we're out for blood. Well, God appoints now six cities where that person that committed manslaughter may flee and find safety. It's kind of like a no-go zone where now anybody that's seeking revenge on the deceased person cannot do anything towards that person while in that city of refuge. And there's just a wonderful correlation between these cities of refuge and what we have and see in Jesus. First of all, both Jesus, and we're not gonna get in, Numbers 35 teaches on this, we're not gonna get into the whole requirements of the cities of refuge, but I'm gonna just go over in a nutshell. Again, the, the wonderful correlation. First of all, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of the needy person. God spaces them out through the nation of Israel. So there's a place nearby, if somebody is in danger, that they can flee to and, and have a city within easy reach. Jesus does not make it hard for people to come and find refuge and salvation in him. He's within easy reach. Secondly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are available for all. It's not just the Israelite. This wasn't just something that God says, okay, if you're a Jew, you have access, but nobody else. This was available for all, just as Jesus invites all to come to him and find life and salvation. Thirdly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only solution for the one in need. There'd be no other, no other way for that person that committed manslaughter who's now perhaps being hunted down to find help. There'd be no other recourse, no other, no other way to have protection. It was only found in the city of refuge. It's only in Jesus, you see, by which we may find salvation and, and refuge. We might find life. It doesn't come in any other way. It's only through Jesus. Fourthly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries right? It's only within that city of refuge. You can't go outside and think, well, I've been hanging out in the city of refuge for a while. I'm just going to take a little meander around, you know, just outside the walls a bit. No, it's only within the city of refuge that you can find that kind of help. And in the same way, we too are to be those that are abiding in Jesus. Not thinking, well, it's Jesus and maybe other means or other ways, we've got to stay close to Jesus. We've got to be abiding in him for us to find that safety and protection. And fifthly, both Jesus and the city's refuge, or with both Jesus and the city's refuge, 
Full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. And that's interesting because the person could flee to the city of refuge and find safety and once the high priest in Israel died, then that man was fully protected and was allowed to leave that city of refuge and not be harmed any longer. See, here's the thing. We do not deserve to be cleared from sin and in fact, we may wonder sometimes how that is so. It's answered simply in the fact that Jesus, our high priest, died for us. His death brought freedom from sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, and that penalty was death. There are those that will say, oh, you know what, I I believe in God, but they've not been freed because they've not believed in Jesus and in the truth and reality that Jesus had to die for their sin. They've not put their faith and trust in him and in him alone. People don't want to often accept that. It takes humility to accept that someone had to die for you. But unless you believe that Jesus died in your place to forgive you of your sin and, and, and that he rose again to prove he's the giver of life, you're not going to be set free. It's only found in Jesus and in the work he did for you. But whoever turns to Jesus as our high priest, the only way to a right relationship with God are going to be set free and find complete freedom in Christ. John 8, 36 says, therefore the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now an important distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge only helped the innocent. Whereas Jesus says, come to me in your sin and guilt and I will make you clean. I'll forgive I will heal and give you life. Praise the Lord for that. It says in verse 15, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. <laughs> See, man, back in these times, there were no timeouts given, no taking away of toys or privileges. If there was disrespect to the parents, yikes, man, that's the last thing that child did. Literally, Right? Now, sadly, as we've seen, this becomes all too common where we've seen a society become less and less civilized, less and less showing of respect to elders, especially to parents. But God has these laws in place for the benefit of all. When a family unit is intact, when there is respect to elders and parents, that filters down into society. And the Lord sought to secure that for the benefit of society and the benefit of all. Verse 16, we're gonna go through some of these very quickly, so I hope you got your Bibles open and you're just tracking along here. We're gonna move through. Like I say, there's, we're not gonna get through um, you know, both of these chapters here tonight, but, um, or sorry, into chapter 23. We'll get through chapter 22, but we're gonna look at things very rapid fire here. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells them, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So kidnapping and extortion were, were capital crimes, right? Don't mess around with this. It's like one and done. You do this, you're, you're out, right? Verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now that took disrespecting parents to another level. Like we saw in verse 15, he who strikes his father, that's hitting them, not showing respect, but now cursing them is kind of like threatening them threatening him to the, to the point of even like, we're gonna take you out here. 
you threaten to take them out. Guess what, child? You're the one that's gonna be taken out again. Capital crime here. Verse 18, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with a staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So two people get into a brawl, they get in a fight. One of the guys gets hurt and he's kind of laid out. He's incapacitated. He's gotta be you know, in bed for a little while. Well, the man that did that has to make amends. He's gotta pay for his loss of income, perhaps medical expenses. Again, it's ensuring that the, the punishment fits the crime. It's not capital punishment on that. This man still is alive. He's been affected by that, but if he's able to move around and, and still kind of do, well, that man just has to take care of those expenses that have been uh, occurred through that misfortune. Verse 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Interesting, the death of a slave by the master or by their master it resulted in punishment. We're not sure exactly what that kind of punishment was, but the, the slave remained alive for a period of a day or two after. It would show that the master was not really intending to kill him. He didn't take him out. The, the slave is still, is still there. So uh, the punishment, again, would be meted out perhaps by judges. We're gonna see later on that you know certain things were brought before the judges to kind of determine the kind of retribution that was needed. So perhaps this master be brought before the judges to deal with what would happen. But again, it wouldn't be typical for a master to say, I'm gonna you know, take out my say, because again, this was their help. This was a, almost a source of income to them as well. So it wouldn't be their intent to really wanna take them out. But again, there'd be punishment enacted for a mistreatment of them. Verse 22, if men fight and, and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then he shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So the guilty party in that situation here now, if a woman was affected well, the husband would you know, determine a price that was fair and that was approved by the judges. If there's something that's gone on with the woman that's carrying child and the, you know, uh, something happens to that child, well, the husband would determine what would be the proper punishment. And that would be, again, uh, confirmed by the judges. Now, if further harm follows, then retribution would be carried out by the eye for an eye principle. This is where we've you know, heard this many times, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Now at first glance, that seems kind of harsh and barbaric, right? It's like, oh man, that's it. We're gonna just take what we can from you. If you've done something, we're gonna go right back with this harsh revenge. But as you begin to see the heart of God in all of these things we're looking at, this actually reveals the grace and the mercy of God. How so? Well, you see, I think our human tendency is not just to get even, but to get one up. It's to like, oh man, you've done this to me? Well, I'm gonna go back even harder on you. 
I'm going to pay back double, man. There's no way I'm going to let you get away with this. I'm not just going to do something on an even level, man. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. I'm going to make you hurt. I'm going to go extra hard on you for what you've done to make sure you never do that again. That's kind of human tendency. Maybe it's just my tendency, but that's, <laughs> I hope that's, it is, it's, oh, thanks, Brent. I thought you were going, it is just your tendency, Brent. Yeah, it's just you. We don't feel like that at all. I have to guard myself from that. I was, I was known for that as a, as a younger person with my buddies. I guess I, I made the know, if you do something to me, I'm gonna go extra hard on you because I want you to fear what you do to me to know that's gonna come back on you double, right? That's kind of how I live and everybody knew that, but I've changed since then, guys. <laughs> I repented of that. But that's our human tendency. And thank you, Brent, for confirming. It's not just me, I appreciate that. But this principle, understand, when, when God brings us in a place as eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, it's to keep things in check. It was to be sure that the punishment fit the crime. It was not to go beyond what the damages were. It was to be even, an eye for an eye. And Jesus even took this to a whole nother degree now and, and to a level of grace. When he said in Matthew chapter five, verse 38 to 42, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever stops you on, the, on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tune, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The Lord began to implement a whole new principle in this kingdom way. As believers, we're not to be caught up in just trying to pay proper retribution. We're to be those that are walking in grace and mercy. Oh yes, there are times where these things need to be applied and, and, and things need to be taken care of in a, in a lawful way. But ultimately the heart for the believer is to walk in mercy and grace and to know that God's the one that takes care of all those things for us. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and how we need to leave that to him oftentimes. So verse 26 here in Exodus 21, says if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So for the servant, they got something even better than just an eye for an eye. They got their full freedom. If I'm a saving that day, I'm kind of like, come on, let's go. Let me have it. Let it right here. Just hit me, just try, you know? I'd be like, oh, tooth is gone. You did it, I'm out, see you later, I'm free. Wouldn't that be great? But that's what's in place here. So this even better deal for the servant if something like that happened to them. Again, God is, is protecting servants here and regulating these things, knowing that this was a common practice going on. God seeks to come and, and bring it a defense and aid to those that were in that condition. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past and it has been made known to his owner and he's not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. 
Verse 30, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whether it is gore to son or gore to daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So here in this passage, if an ox goes and he kills another person, well, that's it, the ox is done, taken out. That's it, no, no like, well, let's, Let's wait and see. Maybe that was just a, you know, he was just having a bad day and it's not gonna happen again. Let's, let's wait. No, if this happened just once, kill somebody, he's done. But the owner is gonna be acquitted. He's gonna be off, all right? And, and, and with that ox, he's not just taken out. It's like, you don't even get to enjoy burgers from this thing. It's like, we're not even gonna, gonna try to make amends. This thing is just gonna be devoured and we're not gonna even touch it. It's gonna be just taken away completely. But it, it says if that ox has been known to be a little bit crazy in times past and the owner doesn't keep it contained and it goes and it kills someone, both the ox and the owner now face the death penalty. However, the family of the deceased could accept a monetary restitution in place of the ox owner's death. So if somebody dies and the ox owner's like, man, you know what? Yeah, he's been known to do that and I should have had it chained up, got loosed. Well, the ox owner faces the death penalty unless that family member, the deceased, says, you know what? Why don't you just pay us this money? We don't want to see you perish too. You pay us this, this retribution and uh, we'll just call it a day there. So they had the opportunity to do that. Now, interestingly, if that ox goes and he, he, you know, gores a male or female servant, notice the cost for that, the master would require 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver. Interestingly, 30 shekels of silver is what Jesus was sold out for as Judas required that amount in payment to betray Jesus. Matthew 26 Verse 15 talks about that. So Jesus was simply looked at on that same level as a servant here and in the payment for, um, yeah, the herd of a servant. Interesting connection there. Uh, So we've seen laws regarding slaves, laws regarding regarding personal injury. Now as we move into verse uh, 33 and onward into chapter 22, we're gonna look at laws regarding property damage. Look at verse 33. And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it. And the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past, and its owner's not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So again, if a person is careless about what they're doing, they have a pit in their yard, and they don't cover it, somebody falls in, then, and it causes harm to someone's animal, they need to pay for it, right? He can keep the dead animal, but it's gonna cost him. If that ox is known to be a bit of a, a, a bully and was not kept secure, the owner of that dead ox will be compensated fully. So again, just seeing retribution given and the punishment fits the crime. Well, chapter 22, and I hope you're just, you know, uh, just enjoying this whole 
list of rules here tonight. This is just a wonderful section. I've been counting the days down till we can really just deep dive into all these great, you know, retributions and laws being given. But chapter 22 continues on outlining the law of Moses. Again, not binding on us, but it is helpful for us because like I said, it expresses the heart, the mind of God and helps us understand even the, the ministry of Jesus. So we continue to look at this practical principle, especially in chapter 22. We'll see this word repeated oftentimes, restitution. That's the Hebrew word shalom, which means to complete or make good. It's very, very much like shalom, you know, everything to, to your good. Here this word restitution is shalom, which is to complete or to make good. And so we'll see this repeated here in chapter 22. It says in verse one, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So God in his wisdom knew what would be the greatest deterrent for crime. And that'd be having to pay back. Having to be responsible for what you do. It's not a problem what we see going on today in the world, especially when you look at, you know, I mentioned this a, a few couple weeks ago, I think on a Wednesday, especially what you see going on in, in some of these places in California where there are no criminal uh, offense done for certain, you know, theft under a certain amount where people can just walk in a store with their bag and just sit there and just start taking stuff off the shelf, throwing their bag and just walk out nonchalantly knowing that you can't do anything against this. And business owners just forced to sit there and watch and lose businesses over this. There's no responsibility upon those that have committed these crimes, you see. And God knew, man, one deterrent for crime would be having to pay back. Sometimes, as we see in this verse, verse one, fivefold, sometimes fourfold, as we'll see sometimes double. Now usually, someone would steal because they were poor. They're just trying to, you know, find their way, uh, provide something for them. But if they had nothing, then how could they pay back their debt? It would fall to the responsibility of the offender's family. Oftentimes, this in itself had severe consequences as it was a major offense, again, to dishonor the family as well. So now the person goes, if I'm not able to pay back this debt or this crime and it falls to my family, well, boy, that's, not, that's gonna be even a worse punishment than having to answer to them. But in dealing with crime and wrongdoing, God laid out this principle of restitution. The victim is restored to a solid situation, in fact, better off than he was before. And the offender carried the burden of having to make it right. And they knew that's what they would have to deal with if they were caught for their crime. The offender wasn't put in prison, wasn't fed three meals a day where they had, you know, internet and all the provision for them, released with money in his pocket for the work they've done. In God's economy, it wasn't about incarceration, it was about restitution. You gotta make amends and you gotta do so now. That was God's way of dealing with these things. Again, today we can do everything to help the offender. The lawbreaker actually becomes the victim oftentimes. Isn't that the reality today, sadly? In fact, there have been court cases of people breaking into homes, getting shot, and then they in turn have sued the homeowner and won. Because <laughs> they're the ones breaking in. Feeling they should not. It's just, it's a mixed up world where we try to bring greater protection to the criminal than we do to the victim. It's a state that we're kind of living in, sadly. It's not what God had 
laid out for us. Now in verse two it says, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Verse three, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So here's the deal. If a guy's trying to break in a person's home and take something, it's nighttime, the homeowner has every right to go, I don't know what's going on. Is this person threatening my life? What's he doing? I don't know what's going on. It's dark. I can't see. I got no switch. We just flick on lights. I'm going to take this guy out. Shoots him, does whatever. There's no bloodshed. There's no guilt for his bloodshed. But now, if the sun has risen on him, there will be guilt if you, and here's what's being implied, if you go after that person. If you go, I think I know who did this. I'm going to go after him now. I'm going to take him out. No, there will be guilt now if you go and take out his life. Because here's the deal. The initial threat has passed. You don't know. This person may be guilty of stealing but now he's got to make amends for it. That's what it says there at the middle of verse three. He should make full restitution. The person that's caught in that theft needs to make full restitution and pay back that which he took. That's what God has commanded there. And if what he's taken is still alive in his hand, he's to pay back double. So he's giving back what he's taken, it's still alive, but now he's got to pay back double. He's got to, he's got to make amends for what he's done in the, and the, the damage he's caused. Verse five, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who killed the fire shall surely make restitution. So again, what we're seeing addressed over and over is this area of responsibility if you've caused harm, hurt, or damage to another person, you need to take responsibility and make restitution. If your animal has done someone's property harm, own up to it, make it right. You know, today people are just throwing out so many excuses as to take the blame off themselves. We have reason to blame everything else but us, and you could be so clearly in the wrong, and yet we have a hard time owning up to that and confessing and saying, yeah, I'm in the wrong. We wanna place blame on everything or anyone else. You know, many people who experienced automobile accidents were asked to explain what happened in just a few words or less on insurance or accident forms. The following quotes were taken from these forms and were eventually uh, published in the Toronto Sun a while back. Some of these explanations or excuses are as follows. Coming home, I, I drove in the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. <laughs> the other car collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. I thought my window was down, but found out it was up when I put my hand through it. I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A truck backed through my windshield into my wife's face. Um, let's see. To avoid hitting the bumper of the car in front, I struck the pedestrian. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. So just some ways that people have tried to explain away the damage they've done 
uh, and try to find excuses to take the responsibility off of themselves. It's, it's very much human nature, but God is calling people out to take responsibility for what they've done and to make things right. Verse seven of chapter 22, if, if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So if a man is entrusted with another's possessions, or if he borrows something, he is responsible for it. If the thief is not found, then the judges must decide if there's any foul play by the keeper of the goods. If he's the one that's kind of taking these things for himself. And the judges will also decide in matters where two people are disputing the rightful ownership of a particular item. So the judges will decide and the guilty party will pay double for their offense. Verse 10, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it's torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. So again, reasons to make something good and reasons where you don't have to make it good. If an animal is given to another for safekeeping and it dies or is hurt, the one that was watching over it must take an oath before the Lord to basically ensure that he had nothing to do with it. It wasn't because of my, you know, bad management of this animal, my lack of care. It had nothing to do with me. He takes an oath and the, the owner of that animal will accept it and, and uh, again, nothing has to be done. But if that animal is stolen from him, no, the one watching over it must make restitution for it. It was under his care, it got taken away, he's gotta make restitution. If another beast attacks and destroys it, well that person who's watching it for that other owner needs to kinda of like verify, man this wasn't, this was a wild beast that just came in and, and took it and he's gotta present basically the carcass of this thing to say this is, look at what's happened. I mean I, I, I could do nothing to kind of stop this and there'd be no need for restitution under those grounds. Verse 14, if a man borrows in anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. For its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came uh, for his hire. If a, if a person then, you see, borrows an animal and it dies or is injured, he needs to make restitution. But if the owner was present when that happened, then he's as much at fault for not preventing it and no restitution is needed. Same with a hired animal at the, as the risk of loss is kind of in the price of hiring that out. When you rent something, if something happens to it, well, that's kind of at the expense of the person renting it. You paid your rent for that, and if it breaks down, it's like, well, that's what you pay rent for to take care of those things. And so it's off of your shoulders to take care of it. So now we move into looking at laws regarding civil and religious obligations. Verse 16, we'll, we'll um, take it to the end of the chapter here tonight. Verse 16 says, 
If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgin. So if a man seeps with an unengaged virgin, they haven't betrothed each other, they haven't come to these terms, uh, they haven't entered in this marriage, and they seep together, well, he's got to pay the bride price. He's not just getting away this thinking, well, I'm just, you know, looking for a good time. I have no intention to marry. No, he's got to now pay the bride price and take care of this woman because of what he's done. Now, the father comes along and he says, you know what? I don't like you. I'm going to spare my daughter from this deadbeat of a jerk. Uh, I'm not going to give her to you, but you still got to pay that price. You still got to uh, make amends and, and allow there to be provision for my daughter because very likely nobody else is going to marry her now after how you've defiled her. And so that was just kind of the, the custom of that day. In the preceding verses now, we have a series of just kind of, again, rapid fire laws. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. So here we see between verses 18 and 24, sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, mistreatment of foreigners and widows and orphans were all grounds for capital punishment. That was a serious thing in the Lord's eyes. It was not something to play around with. Witchcraft. God says, I, I am not going to give any sort of allowance for that at all. Anything that, that, that takes people away from me, you're going to be done. Idolatry. And, and notice how much God is for the marginalized. Don't forget that. The foreigners, they were not to mistreat or oppress. The fathers, the orphans, the widows. God cares for them. Tells us in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So God has a heart for those that are the marginalized and sometimes, you know, the outcast. God wants us to have a heart for these people, to love for them and care for them, not just to be insular and go, well, I just like, you know, I just like hanging out with my people. I just like being in my comfortable setting. No, it's reaching out to those that are in need and on the outside. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to them. You shall not charge them interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear for I am gracious. So again, God says there's to be a compassion now among those that were in need. If somebody's poor and you lend them money, don't, don't look to profit off of them. Don't charge interest. Be compassionate. If somebody's lending you and you give, they give you their coat for like kind of uh, collateral, down deposit. I mean, let them have it at night so that they can seep in warmth. Have a heart of compassion for people 
in that state. This is God's heart here being expressed. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. There was to be a reverence for God and a reverence for those who held positions of authority. God's put those people in place to carry out his, his laws and there's to be a respect and reverence for them and most importantly, towards God. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. So here we see the Israelites were to be reminded that all they had was from the Lord. And what they're to do is to bring the first fruits of what they have received in their crops and their fruits, even in their prodigy, they're to give their first to the Lord. Now, the son obviously was not to be <laughs> sacrificed to the Lord. No, it tells us in Exodus 13 that the, the firstborn was to be redeemed in a sense. They were to you know, give uh, that offering of money to the Lord in redemption of that, of that firstborn. But God was in a sense saying, I redeemed you out of Israel. You know, that firstborn is mine and so giving the first of what we have to lord and in recognition that all we have is from god and it's god's you know we're, we're simply those stewards of what god has given us we want to be good stewards and recognize that what we have is from the lord lastly verse 31 and you shall be holy men to me you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field you shall throw it to the dogs so the people of Israel in this one verse here kind of summarizes up God's heart is that you're to be different. You're to be a distinct people. You're to be a holy people. You're not to be a savage people. You're not to go and begin to eat meat that's been torn by the beast. You're not to be like wild animals, right? Now, first of all, God says this is to your health because first of all, that beast that's been uh, or that meat torn by beasts may still have blood in it and they were commanded not to eat anything with blood in it so that may not have been properly handled it may have been sitting out there for a while and and begun to rot or have disease that would cause them to be sick so god is looking to spare them but ultimately it's revealing god wants them to be civil and not savage they're not to be like wild animals they're to be holy and set apart and this is why God gives them all these commands. You look at all this, you go, man, God, boy, you're a stickler, aren't you, God? Boy, all these rules, these regulations, my goodness, that's heavy. But God puts all these things there for the nation of Israel to say, I want you to be a distinct and separate people from the rest of the nations so that people see that there's something different about you. And ultimately that it points people to me. God had a heart to save all people, not just Israel, but he used Israel to be that evangelistic tool for the rest of the world to come and know the one true God. And he's calling them to be separate and holy and distinct. And that's what that word holy simply means, is to be set apart. Set apart from the things of the world and set apart to God. And to live in a manner where you say, God, I am yours. I wanna live in a manner that pleases you, honors you, and blesses you. That causes you to be glorified in and through my life. It's what we've been called to. Colossians 1, 
21-22 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And that's what God had for Israel. It's what God has for us. And he gives these requirements and regulations so that we'd be above reproach, so that we would be distinct, separate, and holy unto God. And that our lives would truly reflect the beauty and the glory of our God. All right, worship team, would you come? We're gonna close with a song. And why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. You're a benevolent God who has saved us, who's loved us. And Lord, we recognize that your laws are not burdensome, they're not heavy, they're meant to protect, they're meant to safeguard, they're meant to cause us to live distinct and separate and holy unto you. And Lord, I pray that, God, we would walk in your truth, that we would be holy and blameless, that we'd be completely set apart to the honor of God and the glory of God, that the world might see you in how we live and see something, something that they themselves desire and recognize that they need. So like Israel was to be that witness of you, I pray that we, Lord, would be that witness for you as we live according to your truth and according to your word, set apart unto you. Help us in that, Lord. That's a, that's a tall order we recognize. God, but I pray that tonight we would have a, a greater understanding of your heart and your mind. As much as these Laws can just kind of seem like they just go right over our head. I pray that we'd see what you desire, and you desire good. You desire blessing upon your people. And so I pray that we'd see your heart today and desire to live accordingly. We live for you in all that we do. So I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.